you have your Bible, please open to the book of Jonah. Jonah is toward the end of your Old Testament. If you don't have a Bible here today, I'd encourage you just to grab one there in the pew in front of you, and you will find Jonah on page 522, 522 in your Bible. And today we will be looking at verses 1 through 3 in this great book. It's good to hear you turning the pages of your Bible, so I know that you'll be locked in, and now that you've found your place, please go ahead and stand. As I read to you the word of the Lord, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. For their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Let's do some uh, word association. So, I'll say a word, then you say what you think of next, all right? That means you'll have to break with the traditional white church and say something back to the preacher, but it'll be all right for you. It's okay. Yeah, you can say amen even every once in a while. So, here it goes, all right? I say Jonah and the... All right, Jonah and the whale. I noticed nobody said Jonah and the storm, or Jonah... And the plant doesn't really have quite that dramatic flair, maybe storm a little bit. Um, But this book, as you know, has captivated many people, mainly because of the whale story or the fish. If you want to be more accurate, the fish, the great fish. This is a true story about Jonah, really, more than Jonah and a whale or storm or a plant or Nineveh. Really, this is a story about Jonah and his God. If you want a book about a man and a whale, I could uh, recommend to you maybe Moby Dick, maybe the most famous book ever written about a man and a whale. It's uh, on pretty much every top ten fiction books that you must read in your life. If you pick a list, you're going to find Moby Dick on there. Uh, It's considered to be maybe the greatest piece of uh, American literature written by Herman Melville, and he really recounts with great detail and accuracy what it's like to be a whaler uh, during the period in which he is writing in the 1800s. And it's a story It follows from the perspective of Ishmael, of course, and he's on a quest with the sea captain who is a little bit crazy maniac. He's got this maniacal revenge quest that he's on against a great white sperm whale that previously had bitten his leg off. And while it contains a number of gems, there's one that I think is fitting for our look at Jonah. Ishmael is observing the pagan. Um, He's a spearman. Queequeg, I think his name is. Anyways, here's what he says. 
I say, heaven, have mercy on us all, Presbyterians and pagans alike, for we are all somehow dreadfully cracked about the head and sadly need mending. And the book of Jonah reveals this truth, the truth that is captured there by Ishmael 2,500 years before Moby Dick will be written. Except this is not a, a work of fiction. This is a real story. This is a true story that actually happened. There's a reason people that's difficult for people to take, to read this as if it's a true story and instead read it as if it's some kind of allegory written by the Jewish community about the dangers of disobeying God. There are two big hang-ups that people have, really, when it comes to the story. One is the mass repentance of the preaching of one man to this great pagan empire nation of Nineveh. They say this is impossible, but perhaps the most impossible would be that Jonah was swallowed by a great fish for three days and three nights. He spent there, and then he was spit out upon the shore. And they, they read this as an anti-supernaturalist. Right? They, they really say this can't happen. There are some Christians who say, well, perhaps it was a whale shark, but they, they aren't in the Mediterranean. Perhaps it was a basking shark, and they can get up to, you know, 30, 40 feet long, and they have a mouth big enough to swallow a man. And so it's this anti-supernatural bent, the need to explain away the Bible, what it says. And I've encountered this, I know you have, once I was sharing the gospel with an older gentleman. And after spending a great deal of time with him, talking about many things, he said, he said hold up. And we weren't even talking about this. He said, you don't mean to tell me you actually believe that a whale swallowed a man and he survived, was spit out three days later. That came out of nowhere, but it was just there. And I, I just said, have you, have you been listening to what, what we've been talking about? Like We started with that God created the universe from nothing. He spoke and everything came into being. There was a mature universe, a mature world ready to be inhabited by man. And then we just talked about the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Right? Last time I checked, that doesn't really happen. But your hang-up is somehow a whale swallowing a man and it's because we are so conditioned and many christians even are conditioned to read their bible in an anti-supernatural way the god who created the universe has no problem appointing a fish uh, uh, could it be of a natural natural kind or could it be that he just appointed a supernatural fish this is no problem this is just an excuse because he's stuck in that mindset but this book it presupposes supernat the supernatural, presupposes the supernatural. And this story actually happened. It's a true story. It isn't a book written by the Jewish community later, sometime after exile, to explain and to tell, teach some moralistic story. No, this story happened. How, how do I know the story happened? With 100% certainty, how do I know that everything in this book of Jonah happened? Well, it's very easy. Because Jesus said that this story happened. Matthew 12, 38 through 41, which we'll return to, I'm sure, several times as we look at this great book. We'll come back here. Jesus encounters the... Pharisees and the scribes again, and they want another sign. Give us a sign. Just give us a sign so we can believe, even though he had given many. And this is what he said to them. 
An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. This is a true story. This is no moralistic story to tell your children about what bad things might happen to them if they don't obey. We have this idea about the story that it makes for good children's church material, I suppose. And it does. For some reason, it captivates us, and usually, you know, it's portrayed. There's a picture of a smiling fish or something, right? There's a smiling fish uh, who swallows Jonah, and it looks happy. But this is really a dark story. It's a very dark tale. And it's really a tale about how we are all cracked in the head. And in we are in desperate need of mending. This book, as we look at it, we'll see is unique. It's unique among the prophetic books. Um, if you read your Old Testament, what you're going to see if there is a prophetic book is usually filled with prophecies. Prophecies written by the prophet. Or someone writing what the prophet says. A collection of his prophecies, either against Israel or Judah, against the nations even. But this book is a prophetic book. It... it only contains a short, tiny little prophecy found in chapter 3, verse 4, the prophecy of Jonah. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown or overturned. That's it. The rest of it is narrative. So it's a narrative book about a short period of time in Jonah's life. So it's unique among the prophetic books in its narrative setting. So this morning in these three short verses, I... My purpose is simple. I want to introduce you to the book and to the main ideas and many of the themes, as we'll see in the book. And we can do that by looking at the main characters as they emerge in the first three verses. And we can read this story and say, how can, how can Jonah do that? How can Jonah be like that? How can he rebel against God like that? How can he be so bitter? Because he's bitter at the end of this book. But the reality is this, that, that that which we see in Jonah is true of all of us. It's true of each and every one of us. We are fallen creatures and prone to rebel against the word of God. So let us now go to the text so that we might hear and obey the word of God. And the first thing I want you to see as you look at your text is the kind heart of God. I want you to see the kind heart of God. In the first two verses, we're introduced to the main characters, God, Jonah, and the Ninevites. God comes to Jonah, appoints him, rather commands him to go and to preach to Nineveh. And the first character in this story is God. God starts the story. He sets the whole thing in motion. Look at your text. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah. So God initiates this whole story. He is the one who reveals himself, sets everything in motion, starts it all. Divine self-disclosure initiates this story. This expression, 
uh, the word of the Lord came, appears in your Old Testament around a hundred times. But only here does it start a book. The word of Yahweh, that's capital L-O-R-D. That's when you see that, all caps, that's Yahweh. The covenant name of God that he gave to Moses as he was initiating his covenant with his people, he revealed to them the special covenant name to them. This would be his name forever through all generations. Yahweh, the creator. As we'll see in this book, this book is filled with all kinds of gems we can glean from about who God is and his nature. He's the creator God, the God of heaven and earth, the one who made the sea and the dry land. The God who has absolute sovereignty. Sovereignty over his people. Sovereignty over people who are in rebellion. They think they're rebelling against his will. And while they're rebelling, they're actually fulfilling his will. Sovereignty over storms. <coughs> Excuse me. And fish. Sovereignty even over throwing dice. <coughs> Excuse me. It's allergy time. The sovereign God who is sovereign even over pagans throwing dice. <coughs> this word of Yahweh, God came saying. Now I want to pause here for a moment. Just pause for a moment and look at that phrase. Look back at your Bible. The word of Yahweh came. Now, I think we have gotten into this, I don't really know how it happened, this tradition of reading our Bible perhaps a little bit wrong when we encounter this phrase. For a long time, this phrase, I think that we think it simply means that somehow God came and revealed himself. We don't really know. Maybe there was a disembodied voice, maybe just a voice in Jonah's head that no one else could hear. Perhaps a vision came to Jonah. Maybe a dream came to Jonah. Somehow, some way, God came and he made his will known to the prophet. And this sentiment is captured uh, in the New American Commentary, which is a great commentary, by the way. Uh, many of them are great. But they capture kind of the main ideas of this. They say this. The exact manner in which God relayed his desires and our message to, jo to Jonah is not given. God chose to speak to prophets in diverse ways, <clears throat> which is true. At times God spoke through dreams, at other times he spoke more directly. On some occasions God chose to speak through a still small voice or through rather sensational means such as a whirlwind or an earthquake. Now I do take exception with this quote because I think it would appear to me that if you just read it, th this text, and pay attention to the words that are here, I believe the exact manner is presented. The exact manner is presented by which God revealed his will to Jonah. But we've been conditioned to read the Old Testament really without the Rosetta Stone of the New Testament. And if you want to understand the New Testament, then you need to read the Old Testament. You probably have learned that as we study Hebrews, right? Background information is important. But if you want to really read the Old Testament, you really have to have the New Testament. So I'll propose this. The word of the Lord we should interpret based off the revelation of the New Testament. And in John 1, 1 through 5, we read this. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. 
He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And then we read in verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. That's the incarnation of Jesus Christ. But John calls him the word. In the beginning was the word of God. The word was God, and the word was with God. He is establishing the personhood of the second person of the Trinity as eternal, as true God, just as the Father is God, and as the creator of everything. And then the second person of the Trinity, the word of God, became flesh. He was born of a virgin, right? true God, true man. And we know when we profess that truth. But, <clears throat> again, something else I don't know how it really got started. The majority of people will interpret John as if John is writing an apologetic against Gnostics. He's writing really with a Greek slant when he says the Logos became flesh and dwelt among us. But I don't think so. I think that John is giving us a Hebrew slant. He's calling Jesus something he's already been called for a long time. The Word of Yahweh. God creates the world through His Word. John personifies the Word. as the eternal person of the Trinity. And what I believe this term here, how we should read it, whenever it comes up, those 100 times, we should read it like we would read an encounter between Abraham and Christ. You know, God appeared to Abraham, talked with him, once ate a meal with him. It's a personification. It's Christ in the Old Testament. Christ appearing to Abraham. And often he's called the angel of the Lord. But he's also called the word of Yahweh. The word of Yahweh. Also, if you look at your text, you'll notice this. The word of Yahweh came saying. Revelation doesn't come saying. Only people come saying. Personal pronouns are, are, personal pronouns are also used not only just in this commission, but the second. So the first commission, here we, we read that the evil of Nineveh has come up before me. Second commission, so you're... Jonah kind of divides nicely into two parts. Chapter 3 kicks off the next one. Each part is initiated by the Word of God. And in chapter 3, 1 through 2, we see the same thing yet again. As God tells him, commands him again to go to Nineveh, he says, tell them the message that I tell you. So I take this interpretation based on John and based off what's here, I think a plain reading of the text, that this is a pre-incarnate Christ who has appeared to Jonah is actually speaking words like Jonah's hearing with his ears, and you don't hear with your ears unless something agitates sound waves in the material world that you live. So God came, appeared to him like he did many other prophets, spoke with him. He received a direct revelation from God. Now, I could be wrong. I'll grant it. It could have just been a disembodied voice, perhaps some other thing. But 
I think this Christocentric interpretation is far better, and it makes Jonah's response to it all the more shocking, all the more surprising. The first character in the story is God. The second character in the story is Jonah. Jonah, uh, all we're told here is he's Jonah, the son of Amittai. Now, if we go to the book of 2 Kings, we can learn a lot more about him. He's from Geth Hefer. We know that as the region in our New Testament known as Galilee. He's a prophet from Galilee. He's a prophet who's already been used of God, so he's been faithful. He's been proven to be reliable. So in 2 Kings 14, 23 through 27, Jeroboam is the king and he is a wicked king. The nation is divided between Judah in the south, Israel in the north, and Jonah prophesies to Jeroboam. And he prophesies to him prosperity, which is what the Lord told him to do. Uh, despite the wickedness of Jeroboam and his evil and the, and the wickedness and the evil of the people, Israel is on the brink maybe of being totally overwhelmed by her enemies that she's destroyed from the earth. But God saw that, and in his grace and mercy, he sent Jonah to speak to Jeroboam. This is what he said. Listen, just listen to the word of the Lord from 2 Kings. In the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria. And he reigned 41 years, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. He restored the border from Israel, from Laboth Hamath, as far as the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet, who was from Gath Hefer. For the Lord saw that the affliction of Israel was very bitter, for there was none left, bond or free, and there was none to help Israel. But the Lord had not said that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, so he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. So here in the context of this passage, despite their evil and their wickedness and their rebellion, God restores the borders of Israel back to what they had under Solomon. So they enjoy this time of prosperity and increased wealth because God blessed them despite their wickedness. And that came first by the word of the Lord through Jonah. So God sent Jonah to speak and he obeyed. Now during the same time, Jonah has some contemporaries, some other prophets, Amos and Hosea. They are prophets and they speak to Israel as well, but not Good prophecies like Jonah did. Right? They're warnings. Amos and Isaiah, they prophesy against the wickedness of Israel and they warn them to repent or God will bring judgment upon them. So uh, just a little bit of flavor for this that you can get from Amos 2, 6 through 8. God says to the people of Israel through the prophet, For three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not... Revoke the punishment because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. They're engaged in slavery. Those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside away from the afflicted. So they are pressing the poor 
widows, orphans. A man and his father go into the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. They are engaged in all manner of, of, of sexual immorality. They lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. They're engaged in idolatry. They're worshiping the gods that surround them. Perhaps Baal, Chemosh, maybe even the false gods of the Assyrians. They have been incorporating them into their worship. They're evil and wicked and vile. And they, and they won't listen to the prophecies of Amos and Hosea. They're not listening. And so Jonah is a prophet here in this environment. And he sees what's happening. They're called to repent. God's graciously called to repent. And they won't. They're stuck in their wickedness. Now the word of the Lord comes to Jonah. And instead of saying, go to Israel and preach again, it's not go to Israel. It's Jonah. Get up. Go and preach to the Assyrians. To the Ninevites. This is the only time this happens in the Old Testament. That a Old Testament prophet, he receives a commission from God to, to go to a pagan nation and to preach against it. And that should be like a neon light. It's flashing, saying this story is significant in our Bible. And it's significant because of what it reveal, reveals to us about God. God has promised... Prior to this, through Abraham, that all nations of the earth will be blessed through Abraham. God's desire has not always just been to have a people for himself from the people of Israel. <coughs> God's desire from the very beginning was to redeem the world, redeem the whole earth, and that through Abraham all nations of the earth will be blessed. And this divine commission that is given to the elect people of Israel was to be a light of revelation to the Gentiles. The world is dark. People are worshiping demons. They're sacrificing their children. They're engaged in homosexuality and bestiality. They're engaged in widespread slavery. The world is dark. And Israel is to be a light, a beacon of light. They have the law of God, the revelation of God. And that light is to go forth among the Gentile nations. And it's to draw them. Who is this God who gives this great law? And you live in such a just and righteous manner that this place on the earth, this one little piece of land could be, could be an oasis from the hell that is everywhere else on planet earth. And they have failed. And they are failing. And at this time, they don't even care about their commission from God. And in many ways, we'll see a Jonah, he's like a representative of the people of Israel. Because he's a true Israelite. And he loves his brothers. And now Jonah, he's stuck. This creates a conundrum for him. Because Jonah, what Jonah, he tells us why he doesn't go later. So I'll save that for later in the book. But I'll present to you this suggestion, which I think is probably very accurate. Jonah knows God's character and nature. He knows that Israel is going to be judged for her sin. He promised it in the covenant cursings and blessings that God gave through the prophet Moses, repeated again in Deuteronomy. And here's what he knows is going to happen. God's going to judge us. I don't know when it's coming, but it's coming. And now he's sending me to preach to Nineveh. Nineveh is 
an existential threat to Israel. That's how you should think of it, okay? Like, they're the, they're the nuclear button that can decimate them. They're rising in power. They're conquering surrounding nations. They are evil and wicked, and now God has told him to go preach to them to repent. But what happens if they do? What happens if God blesses them? Will God use them to destroy his people? So now Jonah is caught between obeying the Lord. He's caught in a decision. Do I love the Lord? Do I live to do his will? Or am I an Israelite? And will I do what I have to do to protect my people? This is the place Jonah finds himself in. The third character is Nineveh. God, Jonah, Nineveh. Nineveh was founded by Nimrod in Genesis 10. Uh, Nimrod is an interesting character. Um, Perhaps some speculation could be made about his lineage, but he is said to become a mighty man, a hunter before the Lord, meaning probably a hunter in opposition to Yahweh because he founds the city of Babel. Does that ring any bells? Babel has a kind of a bad ring to it, doesn't it, when we read our Bible. He founded Babel, Babylon. He founded Nineveh and many of the surrounding cities. He's a great man in the Bible, but perhaps great in his rebellion against God. And so Nineveh takes on the same flavor as Babylon. It's seen as like a seat of evil geographically and for more reasons than just they're rebellious, right? They're probably overseen in reality by supernatural evil forces in opposition against God. Nineveh is located on the Tigris River of northern Iraq. Many of you have probably been there if you've been to northern Iraq, as I know some of you had. Today it's known as Mosul, and just across the river is the ancient ruins of Nineveh. This was a massive city. It's a great city. It would take you three days to walk across it. This is, it's absolutely huge for this time period. You also discover, as I did, did you know you can measure things on Google, uh, Google Maps? You can just drop a pin and measure. It's about 500 miles to the northeast of where Jonah is at. They're rising in power, soon to become a superpower, soon to be the great capital Syria of the great Assyrian Empire. And they are Israel's enemy. And they are a threat to their existence. A little bit about them, the Ninevites. They were an absolutely bloodthirsty, barbarous people. Probably some of the worst people that have ever lived on planet Earth. They would often cut the hands and feet off of their victims just for the sheer enjoyment of watching their suffering. They enjoyed mass executions by the thousands by impaling people on poles and leaving them on the roads as warnings to their enemies to produce a profound psychological effect and to cause fear. They enjoyed to burn people alive for entertainment. Tiglath Pileser would skin people alive and hang their skin upon his city walls. He would collect piles of skulls for decorations. They sometimes carried away their captives and, and, and fish hooked them through the nose with a rope, probably as a gesture to their fish god, Dagon. 
who was one of their gods, not their main god, but one of their gods. They are absolutely brutal. Every form of sexual immorality you can think of, every form of idolatry you could ever think of, the worst people who have ever lived on planet Earth. It's not an exaggeration to say, say that. And this wickedness, if you look at your text, they're evil. The word evil is raw, and, and it can carry many connotations. Depends on the context of how it is used. For instance, God can do ra'a to a city, meaning he brings calamity upon it. Not speaking in a moral sense, but here it speaks in a moral sense. It means something like profound wickedness. And their wickedness has come up before God. You should think of it as like a smell, right? If we are to be a living sacrifice, pleasing to God, our life becomes a pleasing aroma to the Lord, right? We, it goes up before the Lord. He's pleased with our life. But wickedness and sin and this level of grotesque barbarism has come up before God like a stench in his nose. They are an absolutely brutal people. And this is who Jonah is supposed to go and preach to. Some people have said it's because he's afraid, but I don't, it, it could be. Why would you not be a little a bit afraid, right? These people are horrific. Well, there's more to it than that, as we'll see. But what can we discern about God as we are introduced to these first three characters? What can we discern about God from this text? This, I think, is very, very clear. God is a God who detests evil. We can think, and it's easy to fall into this idea, we look around the world, we see the evil and the wickedness, and we can think that God just doesn't care. He doesn't care about evil and wickedness in the world. But this text tells us that he does. He doesn't turn a blind eye to the wickedness that is in the world. God not only cares, he acts. He always acts. God always acts to confront wickedness in the world. And here he does so by appointing a preacher. Think about that, what that means about God. By appointing a preacher to preach against their wickedness, right? To warn them of impending destruction that will come. And we see this happens all through the Old Testament. An evil nation will arise. Their wickedness arises before Yahweh. God uses another nation to destroy them. God could have done that. But instead here, he appoints a preacher. Why? Why would he do that? Have you ever think, like, why would God do that? These people are horrific. The worst humans alive. Because God is good. He's better, he's better than you and I. I know, I know if, if I were in that position, it would just be destruction. It would just be revenge. It would just be vengeance. All justice and no mercy. But that's not God's heart God has a kind heart, much kinder than we can fathom. God is just. He never leaves the guilty unpunished. Psalm 94, 1 through 2, even God is a God of vengeance. It says, O Lord, God of vengeance, O God of vengeance, shine forth. Rise up, O judge of the earth, and repay to the proud what they deserve. And they deserve destruction. But God is not just just. And sometimes we forget this. He has a heart of absolute pure goodness. A disposition towards sinners not wanting their destruction. Have you considered that? 
even the worst of sinners. God's disposition toward that sinner is not, let me take vengeance upon that vile human. He has a disposition toward grace and mercy, or else there would never be an appointing of a prophet to go and to preach to this evil, vile, wicked people. We may think that God doesn't care about wickedness in the world, because we don't see him acting immediately. But what is clear is time and time again in our Bible is that God is pure, just, good. He never leaves a single sin unaccounted for, never leaves a single sin unpunished. All are held to account, even pagan nations. God will tear them down if they don't repent. But we also see God's inclination, and you just can't miss it. Even the worst human beings, the worst sinners on planet Earth, God has a desire that they hear his word and repent. That should be shocking. To even Israel's enemies, who are an existential threat to them, that he'll forgive them of their wickedness. And this creates this big problem for Jonah, as we said before, because what if they did? He knows Yahweh's heart. He knows Yahweh has a kind, good heart. And what if their enemies repent? He also knows that God is just. And what if Israel doesn't repent? What if they refuse? Jonah is commissioned by God to preach, not to Israel, but to preach to Nineveh, Israel's enemies. And Israel may be in danger of being judged by the very people he is sent to preach to. He's torn between his own people and the God of his people. Jonah in this story is very much put forth as a representation of Israel. Of what they are like during this time period. And he has a rebel heart against his God. And that's what we see next. So first we see the kind heart of God. It can't be missed. The kind heart of God. But now we see the rebel heart of Jonah. There's a term in psychology called the Jonah complex. I read an article in Psychology Today talking about the Jonah complex. They say it's incredibly widespread. So maybe you have the Jonah complex. This is what it is. I'll I'll read to you uh, an excerpt. They say, we fear our highest possibilities. We are generally afraid to become that which we can glimpse in our most perfect moments under the most perfect conditions, under the conditions of great courage. We enjoy and even thrill to the godlike possibilities we see in ourselves in such peak moments. And yet... We simultaneously shiver with weakness, awe, and fear before these same possibilities. So often we run away from the responsibilities dictated or rather suggested by nature, by fate, even sometimes by accident, just as Jonah tried in vain to run away from his fate. It's the Jonah complex that allows us to underachieve and to settle for way less than is available to us. So... The Jonah complex, in other words, is you knowing you have great potential, 
you can see yourself fulfilling that potential. But either purposefully or subconsciously, you sabotage your own success because you're afraid of how great you can become. That's not the Jonah complex. The Jonah complex is this. A flesh nature that is bent toward rebellion against God. And you might not have it. You have it. You have the Jonah complex. Rebellion against God. And that's how this is to be read. Right? You have, it should be shocking to you what happens. Jonah hears from the Lord a direct revelation from God. He's a prophet. He's a chosen prophet of God. And you expect full obedience, immediate, without fail, without hesitation. But you get absolute rebellion. And it should be shocking to read it, that a prophet of God would defy God. The severity of that rebellion is communicated through the way the text is organized. And so I want to give you three, three ways that the rebellion of Jonah is highlighted in absolute severity. Number one, the language that is used. The language is used and it's, it's constructed in a way that you would see that Jonah does the polar opposite of what God commanded him to do. So you, to see this, you need to go back to verse 2 to see God's commission to Jonah. There are three imperatives when God speaks to Jonah. And they are arise, go, call out. Now the first imperative functions adverbally, which means something like get up. Now and go to Nineveh and preach. That's the word. Call, call out, proclaim. We know it as preach. Arise, go, preach. Simple and clear commands from the Lord. The evil and wickedness has come up before me, but instead of destroying them, I'm sending you, arise, go, Preach. Not this. Right? Notice God's chosen instrumentation. Not Jonah. Get up. Go. Organize some community reform. They're savages. They just need reformed. Not Jonah. Get up. Go. And educate the masses. After all, we know if, if we can just educate everyone, people will Leave their barbarism behind. Not Jonah, get up, go, get into the government, become a politician, write and enact just laws and, and, and reform this pagan nation. Not any of those. It's Jonah, get up, go, and preach. Because preaching the Word of God is the power of God coming through a man of God, and it's supernatural. Get up. Go to Nineveh as my representative and speak my word to people who I'm already Lord over, whether they acknowledge it or not, Let me say it another way. Jonah, you are an elect son of God. 
a chosen prophet of Galilee, take the light of revelations to the Gentiles. But what does verse 3 say? Jonah didn't do what God said. Jonah got up. Jonah fled. And Jonah kept his mouth shut. God demanded Jonah, arise, go preach. Jonah says, no, I will arise, flee, and say nothing. But secondly, there's a chiasm in verse 3. So that's seen, like he tells Jonah, do this, he does that. The imperatives are disobeyed, all three of them. But then there's the chiasm in verse 3. And if you remember what that is, I've said it before, and it's a little silly. It's like a theological sandwich, right? So you got the bread, and in the middle you have the meat, and the middle of it is what you need to pay attention to. So it's a way of organizing the text in a way, in a poetic fashion, to where the main points will be emphasized. And so you have a chiasm here in verse 3, and you can recreate it in English. You could even write it out in a pyramid form. So you'd put one line here, then you'd indent it a little bit, and then another line, indent it a little bit, another line, and then you go backwards, right? You end up with like a triangle in the text. And the chiasm is meant to emphasize where he goes. So the first line, Tarshish, to flee to Tarshish. Next line, he went down to Joppa. Then the last two, so you go backwards, to go with them to Tarshish, away from God. He went down into it, and what's in the middle? He found a ship going to Tarshish. Tarshish is emphasized. Why is it emphasized? Well, number one, that's because that's where he went, right? That's where he decided to go. He goes down to Joppa, a port city there, and he just so happens, right? It's, it's strange, right? When you're in absolute rebellion against God, there's, there's, no, there's no thing blocking you. How easy it is. We say, oh, providentially, isn't it just, it just so happens that right when I get here, there's a boat going where I want to go, and it just so happens he has enough money. Some speculate that he sold everything he has because this would have been an incredibly expensive voyage. But we can't know that for sure. All we know is he went to Tarshish. Tarshish is the furthest point, literally, on planet Earth that Jonah can get to, away from Nineveh. So God says, arise, go to Nineveh, 500 miles to the northeast. Jonah says, hmm, uh, let me think about that for one second. No, uh, I'm going 2,000 miles the other direction, all the way across the Mediterranean to see to probably what are the Straits of Gibraltar. And who knows what he would have done if he had gotten there. Maybe he would have tried to discover America because that's the kind of rebellion that's in his heart. I'm going the furthest away from the place you've told me to go. This is not going to happen. Jonah is absolutely defying the will of the living God. He's going to the ends of the earth in his rebellion. An elect son of God, a chosen man of God, a prophet of Galilee, a rebel, a rebel at heart. If I say it like Sinclair, we pay more attention. A rebel. (laughs) He's a rebel. He he is living in open rebellion. It's absolutely shocking to read it. 
It's like nothing we've ever read from a prophet of God. He went to Tarshish. That's what you're supposed to say. If you're an Israelite, they read the stories like, he went to Tarshish? There's no way. There's no way he did that. But also the phrase, Jonah fled the presence of the Lord. So the language that's used, the chiasm, the phrase, Jonah fled the presence of the Lord. It's supposed to be shock. This is to shock you to see the rebellious heart that's in this man. <clears throat> you should not read this as Jonah believed that God was a regional tribal deity that he could flee from. Jonah arose, got a ship going to Tarshish to flee from the presence of Yahweh. He did not believe that God was a tribal, regional, geographic deity. Okay, that's what all of the pagan nations believed around, right, as Jonah is living. So you got in Moab, you've got Chemosh. He's their little regional, tribal, demon deity. you got the Assyrians. And, of course, they have Dagon and a whole plethora of other false gods. Baal, you know of. The Philistines also worship Dagon, this fish god. And they believe they have this regional territorial power. But the Hebrews never believed that. Jonah didn't believe that. How do we know Jonah didn't believe that? Because Jonah knows the Old Testament. He knows what David has written in the Psalms. And in Psalm 139.7, we read about the omnipresence of God. The one true and living God is everywhere. You can't flee from his presence. David writes, where shall I go from your spirit? Or where, sh where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. Jonah knows that. He believes that. But he also, also will see next week as Jonah is speaking to the pagan sailors, Jonah tells them about his God. And he says, if you flip the page of your Bible over to 1.9, he says, I'm a Hebrew. I fear Yahweh, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Right there, so they're all looking for what deity is mad, what, what regional deity, you pray to yours, whatever. And then Jonah says, I serve the creator, the one who made everything, the Lord of heaven and earth and the sea and dry land. And as we'll see, then they know they're in big trouble. So what could this mean? Jonah knows he can't flee from God. He knows he can't run. There's nowhere on this planet he could go to, to get away from God. Everywhere he goes, he, there he will be. How do we interpret this then? Well, there is a similar expression that's used in Genesis chapter 4, and it has to do with Cain. Cain is described in his broken relationship with the Lord, his rebellion against Yahweh, and God's displeasure with him. And so after he is cursed and God sends him out into the world, we read in Genesis 4.16, Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Now, that phrase, went away from the presence of the Lord, really just puts a nice bow on Cain's life, which is already lived outside of the presence of the Lord. Cain brought an unworthy sacrifice, a faithless sacrifice. And, of course, we know Cain as the first murderer who killed his brother. And now when he leaves, after receiving mercy, I would point out, mercy from God, he flees from the presence of the Lord. It means something akin to willfully choosing 
to not walk in the way of. And we can get this interpretation by taking it as seen as the reverse of another expression that's used in the Old Testament of the prophets, which is to stand before the Lord. To stand before the Lord is an idiom that stands for service and walking in his ways. So in 1 Kings 17.1, we read of Elijah, Elijah the Tishbite, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And then in 1 Kings 18, we hear the same expression. Elijah says, And now you say, Go tell your Lord, Behold, Elijah is here, and he will kill me. And Elijah said, As the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, I will surely show myself to him today. We could go on and on. One more from Jeremiah. Jeremiah, the Lord says to Jeremiah, Therefore thus says the Lord, If you return, I will restore you, and you shall stand before me. If you utter what is precious and not what is worthless, you shall be as my mouth. So to stand in the presence of the Lord is to live in fellowship with him. To live as his servant. Any man who stands in the presence of Yahweh lives for Yahweh. Lives to be his servant. Any man who flees his presence isn't making a theological statement about if God is everywhere or not. What that man is saying is, I know God is everywhere. I don't care. I'm not going to follow him. I'm not going to obey his rules and his ways. I'm not going to serve him. And this is what Jonah is saying when he flees from the presence of Yahweh. I know Yahweh is in Tarshish. I don't care. I'm not going to serve him anymore. It's shocking. That's how it's meant to be taken. The rebel heart of Jonah is meant to be shocking to you. And here is the shocking truth of Jonah's rebel heart. That when we sin every time we do, we have followed a step-by-step Jonah playbook. God has revealed himself to each person in this room. Either through general revelation, that's through the creation. God has spoken to you clearly through his creation. His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived by you since you were an infant. You've known there's a creator that you were created and you've rebelled against him. We also have God's special revelation. He's given us, given us His Word. We have more revelation than even the prophet Jonah. More than him. We hear His Word. And we, we do the opposite. We do the opposite every time we sin. Love your wife as, life, as Christ loved the church. And you don't. You do the opposite. Submit to your husband. And you don't. You do the opposite. Don't look lustfully after a woman. Don't even look lustfully. You've committed adultery. You hear the word of the Lord. You do the opposite. And, but you can't, you can't live like that, right? You can't, you can't just live in that disobedience. So what you do is you go the next step. You flee from the presence of the Lord. You can't live in your sin in the moment thinking, yes, God's right here. He knows me. I know him. I'm his servant. You flee. 
from the presence of the Lord to live in your sin and rebellion. You do the very same things that Jonah does. So Jonah is not just a good representation of the people of Israel. Jonah is a good representation of humanity. Because the very same sins we see in the garden. God walked with them in the garden. They knew him face to face, had intimate fellowship with him. He gave them one law, one word. They do the opposite. And then they flee his presence and they hide. Jonah's a rebel. He's a rebel at heart. And we're just like Jonah. These three verses, they impact so much for us, so much truth, don't they? We see the kind heart of God. You, you should be shocked by the rebel heart of Jonah, but maybe even more shocked should you be by the kind heart of God. Because if I'm God, it's earthquakes, it's raiding armies, Nineveh's going down. But God is so merciful and gracious. Even these vile pagans who don't deserve mercy, they're going to get the preaching of the word because God is so kind. He's so kind to, to sinners like you, like me. See the kind heart of God, but we also see the rebel heart of Jonah. But we can't be too hard on Jonah, as we've seen, if we're honest with ourselves, because, because we have the same heart. We have the same flesh inclination to hear clear revelation from God and disobey it. To this day on Yom Kippur, did you know that that's the Day of Atonement? So in the synagogues, even to this day, the Jews knew a book they read? You can talk back to me if you want to guess. Jonah. They read Jonah. Every day of atonement. And at the conclusion, they all say with one voice, we are Jonah. Church, we are Jonah. Now, usually you don't really want to insert yourself into the text, right? That's not a good way to read your Bible. So we all, the famous one is you're not David, right? You're, you're not David. Everyone knows that. Matt Chandler said that at the Elevation Conference. It shocked the world, right? Because most people, they'll preach the Bible, these Old Testament stories, in this moralistic way. Well, you're David, your life's trials are your Goliaths, but if you have enough faith, if you just have enough faith and just believe in God, then you can slay your giants. Right? You're not David, that's not how you read the Bible. But here's one place where you should read the Bible and insert yourself because you are the rebel. You're the rebel man, you're the rebel woman. You're Jonah. What the Jews miss, though, church, what the Jews miss is what we can't miss. Because there is another elect son of God, the chosen prophet from Galilee, who never fled his father's presence, who lived to obey every word. It was his life to do the Father's will. Jesus Christ, the great prophet from Galilee. 
He is the typological polar extreme opposite of Jonah. He's the antithesis of Jonah. Jonah, as we'll see, would rather die than obey God. But Jesus would die if that meant obeying his father. Jesus came for Jonah. Jesus Jesus came for sinful Jonah. Jesus came to live the life Jonah should have lived but could not do it. Jesus came to live the life you should live in obedience but cannot do. But Jesus also died for Jonah. Jesus died for the sin of Jonah's rebellion. The high-handed rebellion against God, Jesus died for Jonah. And that rebellious heart lives in you, and Jesus died for you. Jesus died for your sins. But Jonah failed. Christ excelled. He was crucified on a Roman cross, not for his sins, but for your sins. He was put in a tomb, and he rose from the dead three days later. And he offers life to everyone who will simply turn from their sin and come to him. We don't see the kind heart of God revealed in absolute perfection until Jesus Christ comes. And then we have the full revelation of that, of that kindness of, of God. The, you, what can you say to, to Christ being crucified on a Roman cross which would rival anything these pagan Assyrians did? The most brutal form of execution. And he's there suffering under the rebellion and the grotesque nature of man's wickedness. And what does he say? Destroy them, Father. They know what they're doing. He says, forgive them. They know not what they do. How can you not marvel at the kind heart of God? To be merciful, to send a preacher to these pagans, to be merciful to us, to send his only son, to die for what we deserve, to take it upon himself, to conquer death in our place, a death that we deserve to die, eternal destruction and hell away from the Father forever. And it would all be totally just. People would only say, God is just. God is good. But now we see that God is kind and he's merciful and he's gracious. That which was revealed to Jonah was revealed to us fully. So turn from your sin. Have your sins washed away in Christ. Simple faith, repentance, turn away from your sin. Simple trust, trust in Christ that he actually died for you. Not just he died for sinners. Some people say, oh, I know Jesus died. No, Jesus died for your sin. You deserve to die for your sin, and Jesus took that for you. Do you believe that? Then simply come to him by faith. Come to him by faith. Don't flee the presence of God. Stand in the presence of God through Jesus Christ the greater prophet from Galilee, the Lord of all rebels. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. We, uh, we need to be reminded of the two great truths of this passage. We're rebels but you are so merciful, merciful and gracious. 
abounding in steadfast love, how can we not now just wonder at your goodness? Lord, I pray that there, if there are those here that are not Christians, that the truth of who they are and the truth of who you are, a God ready to, to receive sinners, even the worst of all sinners, that you are ready, not just ready, but you want them. You want them to come to you. Drive that truth down deep into their heart, Lord, we ask. We cannot do it with our own words. The truth is supernatural. We ask that you would convict them of their sin and grant them repentance and faith leading to eternal life. In Jesus' name, amen.